Not just an FTC problem, how YouTube's COPPA in action puts content creators at risk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are doing another episode on the issues with YouTube and COPPA compliance because so many people are affected by this. So many people have come into the comments to my previous videos this week and discussed issues that they are having, asked questions. And while I have to give the disclaimer that I've given in my previous videos that this can't be taken as specific legal advice for your situation, that the law is always going to be based around facts and circumstances so that if you have specific questions you want to ask, you got to hire a lawyer, you got to ask these questions. And yes, I understand that's expensive. That's not really fair for what you want to do as a hobbyist YouTuber or someone that isn't making millions and millions of dollars on this platform. I totally agree with that. I'm not in the business of being a lawyer to just gouge people for money. I wish these regulations weren't so ambiguous, weren't so vague. But to the extent virtual legality can at least talk about these issues, talk through them with you, I think it's helpful. I'm very glad to see a number of people that have subscribed to the channel have said kind things about the things they are taking out of these videos. Uh, But overall, it can't be legal advice. And the previous videos in this series this week have really talked about how the Federal Trade Commission is acting, how I think they are erroneous and how they are interpreting the statute that gives them authority, even if they're not erroneous, how you might be able to get around the claims that they made in their complaint against YouTube. But today's video wants to discuss YouTube. Now, when we first started talking about COPPA last week, we mentioned that YouTube was playing fast and loose with the definitions of whose legal obligations are whose, what the notices say on their various pages, And I think it comes back to YouTube being unwilling to do certain things to comply with COPPA. So if you haven't followed previous videos in this series, I want to start out really at the basics, at the foundation of what your obligations or what YouTube's obligations are under this children's online privacy protection rule, which as of 2013 is how the Federal Trade Commission interprets the authority granted to it by COPPA, which is the act version of this rule. The FTC has made these rules to interpret that act, and it interprets it as follows. Now, one of the things that pops up, because so many people have asked this, even if they've only kind of watched some of the videos or watched half of the videos, is, you know, can the FTC come after me? Really, am I out of compliance if I fail to label things correctly, because YouTube's now given me this button to say it's for kids, it's not for kids, and all the definitions in the COPA rule, in the act itself, are not very understandable, especially to a layperson, but even to lawyers. They're so vague, we don't know how they're going to be interpreted, so I don't even know whether I should hit that button or not, Rick. Can you help me? The answer is, unfortunately, no lawyer can help you because the FTC hasn't gone down the road to actually interpret this thing for many, many, many people. They've just basically asserted, hey, if you're doing Barbie car videos, probably you're for kids. If you're doing something else, maybe you're not. And we'll decide on the day. So people say, oh my gosh, if I label it wrong, can I get fined $40,000? The answer to that is on its face, no, because COPPA isn't a labeling regime. It's about data collection. As we look at this once again, the actual rule is it shall be unlawful for various parties. And we're going to skip the question of whether you are an operator of the website. You can go to my previous videos this week to check out that question, particularly the video about weaknesses in the FTC's case. But it shall be unlawful to collect personal information from a child in a manner that violates the regulations prescribed under this part. In other words, 
you can collect personal information from a child if you follow these regulations. And what do these regulations ultimately say? In section four, they say, you'll give notice. It shall be the obligation of the operator to provide notice and obtain verifiable parental consent prior to collecting that personal information from a child. That notice has to be essentially clear. It can't be overly legal easy because we are assuming that parents can't dive into a 35 page document about how your data collection works. That notice has to say certain things about when a parent can rescind consent, all this other stuff. You then have to go get what the FTC and COPPA calls verifiable parental consent, which says you will go and get, if you know you are collecting data from a child, you will go and get their parents consent to that collection. And you're actually allowed to go and ask questions of the child to get the notice information about the parent. So to get their email address, however else you might contact that parent. And you can have that for a short period of time solely for this purpose. And if you do those two things, and then if you otherwise respond to requests from a parent to see the information, to just delete the information, all this other stuff, not condition participation in a game, keep the information internally confidential, have these security provisions. If you do those things, the primary obligations are notice and consent. And if you do those things, you can collect information from the child. So the question becomes, you know, what is actually happening here? And I think it's worthwhile to go back to the comments to this rule that were made in 2013 that we discussed in yesterday's video, because ultimately what the FTC has determined here and what they are implying about content creators is that the content creator who they are going to call an operator of the website, which I think is very, very challengeable, but let's pretend you lose that or you don't want to challenge it. They say the following. The commission, the FTC, believes that the primary content site or service, you, the content creator, is in the best position to know which plugins it integrates into its site, to know what data is being collected, and is also in the best position to give notice and obtain consent from parents. There's a lot of other commentary here, but the basic gist is this. The FTC's claim is that you are running a channel website, and separate from YouTube, you are then outsourcing various services of that website to YouTube. Now, yes, I understand. You're sitting there shaking your head saying, Rick, that's not how this relationship works at all. And they actually have comments in this document that says, hey, a number of people actually came out and said, you don't have these relationships. You can't manage all of the various things that a third party does, especially in this kind of concepting of what YouTube does for various folks. You actually see here the line earlier on that says, most of the comments oppose the commission's proposed modifications on third party collection and all this other stuff. So industry groups opposed it, even privacy advocates opposed it for various reasons that they think let YouTube and folks get off the hook. But basically the commission says, hey, you're in the best position to give this notice even though you don't control the data. So what they have said here is you have this site, you outsource these current services to YouTube, YouTube does these things for you. And if YouTube isn't compliant with COPPA, if they aren't putting that notice up, if they aren't getting parental consent, then you are liable for the failures of YouTube because you should have known better. You had the capacity to essentially authorize YouTube to do these various things and you should know what data they are collecting. Obviously that is silly on its face. 
And before all of this, I don't think content creators had any idea about persistent identifiers. And if they did, if they did have that idea that YouTube was using persistent identifiers, there was no reason to believe that YouTube wasn't actually following their notice and consent requirements. That's YouTube. That's their international multi-billion dollar business model. We can presume that they are complying with applicable law. Only in this case, they absolutely weren't. We look at what was actually claimed against them and we go back to the complaint that the FTC in the state of New York made against Google and YouTube. And the main complaint is, in numerous instances, this is based on persistent identifiers and behavioral advertising in connection with the acts and practices described above, Defendants, YouTube and Google, collected, used, and or disclosed personal information from children in violation of the rule by failing to provide notice, by failing to provide direct notice to parents, and by failing to obtain verifiable parental consent, and some other stuff, some other legalese. But the basic gist is, hey, YouTube, if you collect this persistent identifier from a child, and again, this is primarily people that haven't logged in, because if you've logged in, you've told YouTube that you're 13 plus, but they also collect persistent identifiers just from you visiting the site. If you haven't logged in, YouTube, you have to collect these things. So ultimately, when they enter into a stipulated order with YouTube, one of the things they say is, yep, you're going to have a for kids or not for kids box that people can check. And you're going to tell people that they are obligated to check or not check that box for you. You're going to tell people that they have certain obligations under COPPA, but ultimately for you, YouTube, what you are enjoined from doing is failing to make reasonable efforts, taking into account available technology to ensure that a parent receives direct notice, failing to obtain parental consent before any collection, and failing to post a prominent and clearly labeled link to an online notice of its information practices. In fact, the FTC has an entire page of how you can comply with COPPA, right? I've heard people in my mentions, I've had DMs say, hey, I've heard that you can get out of COPPA by getting parental consent. And that's not really an accurate legal description of what's happening here. COPPA is parental consent. This is a consent rule. This is a consent act. They don't want to ban anyone from collecting data. They just say, hey, if you're going to collect a child's data, then you have to go get the parent's consent. Kind of philosophically, I'm not sure that many of us have an issue with that overall conceptually, but COPPA comes in and says, hey, if you are a website or online service directed to children under 13 and you let others collect personal information from them, COPPA applies to you. If they use a persistent identifier, that's personal information. And if it passively tracks a child online, that's collection. So you've got a situation where, again, if they can name you as an operator of a website, which I think is a significant issue, then they can say, if you do all these things, then COPPA applies and says, if another company collects personal information through your child-directed site or service, through an ad network or plugin, for example, you're responsible for complying with COPPA. Now, notice the language here in this FTC document, right? This all still contemplates that you're actually operating your website, that you've got a website and you're deciding what plugins go in. You're deciding what videos will be suggested on the side. You've got overall authority of how the website works. They're talking about ad network things that you decided to incorporate, plugins that you decided to to include in your website. So the fact that YouTube buried a checkbox four menus deep that maybe if you check will get you out of some of the bad things that the FTC is accusing you of is problematic in and of itself. 
But they also say, okay, so you fall under this bucket or so you're YouTube and you actually have these obligations directly because you're the one collecting the data. You post a privacy policy. Here's the things you do. You list all operators collecting personal information. If you are a YouTube content creator and you think you might be an operator as the FTC would like to assert, you say, hey, YouTube is collecting this data and I otherwise follow these rules. YouTube is collecting this data and YouTube is doing this various things with it. That's easy enough for YouTube to actually incorporate into its overall structure of its website, to have a link at the bottom of everybody's video page that says, hey, if you are a child, Here's what applies to you. Here's what we need to have happen. Here's the things that are going to be required under the law for us to tell you. And here's a whole page of things that'll give you the information. They could add that to everybody's video page without any problem and have this notice requirement met by every channel operator without much difficulty. Now it would cost some time, it would cost some engineering, but the actual policy notification piece isn't that difficult. Now, getting parents verifiable consent is a bit harder, right? The actual methods that they've said that are fine, they don't prescribe specific methods. They just say you have to get parental consent that you can verify. But these methods in this particular document are known by the FTC to be okay. You know, you can have a signed consent form, which seems unrealistic in the internet age. You can make sure that people use a credit card. If they have to insert a credit card, then we can assume that they are 18 plus because credit cards require 18 plus. They require age of majority in whatever jurisdiction they're in because credit card companies don't like to have voidable contracts with people that ring up big debts. They can call a toll-free number staffed by trained personnel. You could actually have a parent call into YouTube and say, I'm a parent, let this IP address, let this persistent identifier do what it wants. You can connect to trained personnel via video conference. You can provide a copy of a form of government-issued ID. You can send copies of your driver's license. Here's one of my favorites. They can answer a series of knowledge-based challenge questions. This I call the Leisure Suit Larry method. If you're not familiar with that game, back in the 80s, there was an adventure game that featured kind of some lascivious plot lines. It was about a guy going out into the world and trying to get lucky. And so at the start of that game, it had a series of questions that in the 80s would have indicated that you were adult. It was questions about like the Beatles and the Cuban Missile Crisis and things of this nature. Now, as an enterprising you know, 10-year-old or whatever it was, I figured out the answers to those questions and I partook in them. So I'm not sure how effective that method is, but it is listed as a bullet point that is allowed by the FTC to get verifiable consent from parents. Here's something else that I also highlighted. If you will use a child's personal information only for internal purposes and won't disclose it, you may use a method known as email plus. So what we're talking about here again is persistent identifiers used to serve up behavioral advertising. So if you don't disclose it, if you're only using those internally and you don't sell it to someone else directly, I think you probably fall under this rule. It's unclear the FTC, like so many other aspects of it, is pretty vague and you're not always understood as to where they're going to fall on any particular issue. But for YouTube and what we know about what they collect data from the complaint, then this would appear to apply. Under that method, you send an email to the parent and have them respond with their consent. You say, parent, can this persistent identifier look at our stuff? And the parent says, yup, or checks a box. Then you must send a confirmation to the parent via email, letter, or phone call. If you use email plus, you must let the parent know they can revoke their consent anytime. This is a mail serve, right? This can all be automated. This can be, hey, persistent identifier, we see you haven't visited YouTube before. If you haven't visited YouTube before and you are not logged in, 
Please log in because that'll assure us that you're 13 plus because those are in our terms and conditions. But if you aren't logged in, we're going to send you an email. Please give us an email address to send it to. And you can have your parent verify that everything here is okay. We can do that all automated. They can get a return email. It can be done in five minutes. And that's makes a lot of sense. And that's what YouTube would need to do to get verifiable consent. Have an automated email message system and a link on everybody's video to their privacy policies and a website that actually has these privacy policies and a place to contact them if a parent wants to know what data has been collected on their persistent identifier as a child. That is all YouTube needed to do to comply with COPPA. And that's what they have told the FTC and the state of New York they will do in the stipulated order in respect of collecting children's materials. They say, okay, you've made all these complaints against us and we agree that we will make reasonable efforts to give notice with regard to the collection of data from children. We agree that we will promote and post a clearly labeled link to an online notice of information practices with regard to children on the Homer landing page or screen of its website or online service. We agree we will get verifiable parental consent before collection of data from children. YouTube agreed to all this stuff. And I think the FTC in New York didn't know exactly what YouTube was going to do with their overall structure. That's not really up to the FTC. But ultimately they say, okay, YouTube can go and they can put these links. They can have an automated email system. They can do all these things and not otherwise upturn the apple cart of what their business model is and not have people panicked about whether or not they check that kids or not kids button because overall, even if there is some discrepancy between whether the FTC thinks you're directed at kids and whether you personally think you're directed at kids, even if there is that discrepancy, YouTube has already otherwise complied with everything. But what YouTube decided to do instead was to say, okay, if you check that box, we turn everything off. We are unwilling to do notice. We are unwilling to go get consent. So what we are going to do is we are not going to collect the data because all we've promised to do is we'll comply if we collect the data. But if we don't collect the data, Galaxy Brain YouTube thought, if we don't collect the data, we don't have to do any of this stuff. So if you check that box, we're not going to collect any data, which is fine. I mean, that's a solution. But now the problem is all of that liability, all that panic, all that fear, all that concern lays at the content creator's feet because if they get that box wrong, they come to Rick, they look at virtual legality videos, they send me DMs or emails and say, if I get that box wrong, what happens? And again, I can't tell you about your specific circumstance, but I can tell you if you get that box wrong, YouTube isn't changing any of their notice and consent policies. They aren't changing any of their data collection policies on the website as a whole. So if you get that box wrong, and the FTC comes after you, and if you don't otherwise prohibit interest-based ads, as we talked about in yesterday's video, then yes, the FTC has to make this very difficult case, but if they succeed in doing it, your failing to check that box might be taken and might get you in front of a judge that actually does impose a fine that says, yeah, you allowed YouTube to do these things, even though it was within YouTube's power fully and completely to comply, They said, now we're not going to comply. Check that box if you're worried it's on you. And that's where YouTube has left content creators. And that's what's so frustrating about this is that YouTube as a partner who makes money off of these things, the reason that this even came up 
with the FTC. The reason it even came up with the state of New York is not just because the content creators allowed behavioral advertising and the FTC was upset about it. It's because here in paragraph 41, defendants earned close to $50 million from behavioral advertising on only the channels they listed, which represent a few examples of the possible universe of child-directed content on YouTube. They were upset that YouTube was making money. That's why they were penalized. YouTube made $50 million sharing behavioral advertising revenues from the sites that they name, which include some really large sites uh, like Hasbro and other things, but that YouTube was making this money. And YouTube could have continued to make that money if they just went through the process of having a notification and consent regime. Now, if that isn't bad enough, it actually gets a little bit worse. Let's go back to the actual rule and look at what the FTC has actually allowed people to do that YouTube has specifically not incorporated in the technology in its website. I've highlighted it here, but here we are in the definition of what a website or online service directed to children means. And it's a commercial website or online service or portion thereof that is targeted to children. We've talked about it in yesterday's video and in the video before that. This is a terrible definition. It's what everybody is freaking out about because directed to children means targeted to children, doesn't get you anywhere. And then it says in determining whether a website will be directed to children, the commission will consider this bucket of stuff without any other contours for the various weighting mechanisms that might be used, how it interprets subject matter as relating to kids or not, all of these things. But the FTC actually said, hey, we understand that's pretty vague. And we understand that you might have a general audience that you are trying to hit that might still be attractive to children. So they went further with paragraph three here, and they said a website or online service that is directed to children under the criteria set forth in paragraph one. So we start there. Okay, you've got colorful boppy music. You've got animated characters. You're talking about Barbie toys. You're talking about Transformers, whatever it might be. If you've got that there, and we would otherwise hold you liable under paragraph one. So that's where we start. But you don't target children as your primary audience. So said another way, your stuff complies with paragraph one. We could find you directed to children, but you are not targeting children as your primary audience. You are instead general audience aimed or mixed audience aimed. That children are a component of, but not your only or your primary audience for your materials, which is a lot of the subject matter I hear being brought up again and again in my comments. Hey, I make uh, train model videos that I think everybody will like, or even though they're toys, really honestly, it's an older hobby. Adults like it more than kids, but I'm worried about the FTC. They go there and say, okay, even if you'd fall under paragraph one, if you're not targeting kids as your primary audience, then you are not going to be deemed directed to children if you don't collect personal information prior to collecting their age and you prevent the collection of that personal information after they say they're 12 or under. In other words, an age gate. And an age gate is a simple technological solution that YouTube should be able to implement that says we collect passive information. If your persistent identifier is new to us, if we don't recognize your IP address, however else they are using cookies or whatever else they are doing behind the scenes, if it is new, the very first thing we do when you arrive at YouTube is say, how old are you? Are you older than 12? 
If you are older than 12, we can collect the information. If you are not, then we prevent the collection, use, or disclosure of personal information on our site. And maybe you do that as to every single channel that they visit, but only the one time on every visit because, hey, those identifiers are persistent. That's the whole problem in the first place. We ask you that question, you answer that question. Yes, it is moderately annoying. Nobody likes age gates. Everybody hates viewing a trailer on Steam and you have to put in the date of your birth or whatever it might be. But if you have that age gate, if you have that age gate, then this says you won't be deemed directed to children if your channel doesn't target children as its primary audience. And this would take so much weight that I am seeing off the shoulders of so many people that view their product services as aimed at everybody and not aimed at children specifically, that that is the primary YouTube focus. I think from a lot of the people that I'm seeing is, yeah, we want to be quote unquote family friendly. We don't want to swear and drink and have violence and whatever references to sexuality in our videos. So it is by definition family friendly, but it's not aimed at 12 and under. You know, virtual legality doesn't swear because we don't like swearing. We don't feel it's useful for a lot of the uh, rhetoric here. But that doesn't mean that it's directed at children because I don't use a lot of uh, colorful language. But if we actually look at paragraph one, language is part of the conversation. If you swear a bunch, you're probably going to get out of the bucket in paragraph one. And does the FTC really want to encourage everybody to just randomly swear on their Nintendo videos? I don't think so. But that's kind of the unintended consequences of how this operates in practice. Except that YouTube had the option, continues to have the option, and maybe, hopefully, down the line, when they see all this happening, and potentially if their revenues get hurt going into next year, they will look at this and say, let's put an age gate up for Pete's sake. And let's also have a link to various notice requirements on every channel page. And then let's also have an automated email plus parental consent feature. And let's save everybody money. Let's make ourselves money. And let's get content creators not scared about the FTC breaking down their door and asking for $40,000. And unfortunately, that means that YouTube is a part of this puzzle. Now, with COPPA compliance, the FTC, YouTube, Google, all of this in the news, it is no wonder that we can expect to see age gates and other technological measures start popping up to solve this issue. And in fact, I saw it in the news just yesterday. I've pulled up now a tweet from FireMonkey at Fortnite Intel that says it appears there will be an age gate for certain players, with the game requiring players to tell Epic the day, month, and year they were born, or else they will have their account deleted. This is in respect of the popular Battle Royale video game Fortnite. This is most likely due to the new law being passed regarding content for kids. Now, I don't know what law he might be referring to or whether he's referring to a different jurisdiction or country. I think more likely in the United States, at least, he's talking about interpretations and enforcement threats with respect to COPPA, which hasn't changed since 2013. But overall, it is no surprise that people that are interested in having games that are otherwise attractive to children but are aimed at a general audience would look at what the FTC has actually put into the copper rule and said, age gate, okay, you know what? That's fair. We maybe don't have to do all the rest of this stuff because we won't be deemed directed to children if we put in an age gate. And so that is the ultimate thing that YouTube could do. It's no surprise. Be on the lookout for this in news articles as we go forward in the next couple months. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Facebook, other tech giant companies, other things where people create content 
and could potentially fall under the the COPPA regime and the FTC's all-seeing eye that some of these tech companies say, all right, we're going to put an age gate in here. If we have a persistent identifier, it's obviously going to depend on what data they collect, but that the age gate makes a lot of sense, especially for people that have a legitimate reason to be scared about not knowing which box to hit and believing in their hearts that their product, that their service, that their channel, that their site is aimed and intended for everyone and not just for those 12 and under. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this video, please like, please subscribe, please share it around. Obviously, this is a continuing part of our YouTube COPPA series. I've also added a playlist called YouTube at Large, which brings up all of the YouTube videos that I have done over the course of the past year. If you can believe it, Virtual Legality isn't yet even a year old. We're actually about six days from our first anniversary. And we are very thankful to everybody that has recently subscribed, as well as all the people that started out with us in our earlier videos. If you like this, like, subscribe. I already said that. But if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast format, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.